Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Tom Davenport. Tom's a world-renowned academic, consultant, and best-selling author. His latest book is All In on AI, How Smart Companies Win Big with Artificial Intelligence. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, it is my, my pleasure to welcome Tom Davenport uh, to this conversation. Tom is the President's Distinguished Professor of Information Technology and Management at Babson College, the co-founder of the International Institute for Analytics, a fellow of the MIT Initiative for the Digital Economy, and a senior advisor to Deloitte Analytics. He's written or edited more than 20 books, including his latest, All In on AI, How Smart Companies Win Big with Artificial Intelligence. He has also written over 250 print or digital articles for Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, the FT, and a variety of other publications. One recent article that I particularly recommend that can be found on hbr.org is Stop Tinkering with AI. That was in the January, February issue of the print magazine, but as I say, can also be found virtually. Tom, welcome uh, to Technovation. It's great to speak with you. I, as a, somebody who's admired your work from a distance, it's wonderful to get to know you. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a great pleasure. Well, I, I want to begin, Tom, if I may. I just mentioned you are a professor of information technology and management at Babson College. Interestingly enough, your PhD from Harvard is in sociology. And of course, many who would know you uh, associate you with a variety of topics that are technical in detail. Um, I wonder if you could take a moment and talk about how uh, your pivot from a discipline that is the study of social life, social change, and social causes and the consequences uh, of those on human behavior, uh, uh, and the consequences more generally of human behavior, pivoted towards technology. What, what, what were the pathways in? Sure. Um, well, early in my sociology career, even as an undergraduate, which I, I also majored in sociology, I started working for professors on doing statistical computing kinds of things. And then as a graduate student, I sort of paid my way through graduate school, um, working in a computer lab, helping people do mostly statistical computing. And then very briefly, I had a job as head of end user computing at Harvard Computing Center. So I think over time, I got more and more interested in computing, and less and less interested in various sociology topics that I was studying and writing about, and maybe five people around the world would pay attention to them when I wrote about them. And so I um, uh, I went to this sort of retread program for, that Harvard briefly had for its PhDs to go into business. And one of my teachers was a guy who worked for an IT consulting firm that I thought was great. And I would have um, wanted that job even if I had an MBA. I had applied for an MBA, even though I had a PhD from Harvard already, Harvard Business School rejected me. But um, MIT accepted me. I was all ready to go to MIT. And then I got offered this job at this IT strategy boutique. And I said, forget that. I'm going to Europe and buying a house with that tuition money. So, <laughs> uh, and I've been in pretty much IT oriented jobs ever since, um, trying to take up somewhat human perspective on them, which I think is some uh, in a little bit short supply. There are a lot of people who know more about technology than I do, but not too many sociology PhDs. <laughs> That's very, very interesting and, and an interesting confluence of your of your your backgrounds, both academic as well as professional. Uh, lingering on that mo that point for a moment longer, you've been affiliated with a number of universities, the University of Chicago, Harvard, Boston University, University of Texas at Austin, Dartmouth, uh, the University of Oxford, Babson College now, of course. You've also been affiliated with a number of consultancies, uh, CSC and CSA, CSC Index, McKinsey, Accenture. Ernst & Young, Deloitte, where you are currently affiliated, as I mentioned in the introduction. Um, you, are you, you suggesting so I can't hold a job? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your word's not mine, Tom. Uh, <laughs> I wonder, I mean, with Kierkegaard, I think was the one that said the life can only be understood backwards, but it's lived forwards. But as you look backwards uh, at, at your experiences, I wonder... How, how can you explain the kind of wandering that you've done professionally it, it, at times in uh, academics, at, at times in professional now, and, and at, also at other times in both a foot in both worlds? How have you thought about the combination of those, as well as the kind of wanderings from from different sorts of firms, different sorts of academic institutions? 
Sure, that's a great question. I don't know why, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before, but it has worked out pretty well for me because I'm basically doing the same thing in all of these jobs. You know, I'm um, in the consulting firms, I'm primarily doing thought leadership that um, somewhat hackneyed term, but doing research and writing about it and speaking about it and so on. And in business schools, I'm doing the same thing. Um, I, as professors go, I think I'm on the applied end. I write a lot of stuff, but I really write for practitioners. I don't really write for other academics, which sadly, most business school professors are writing primarily for other academics who decide whether they'll get tenure or not. And so I, at one point I decided, hey, I'm not going to do that at all anymore. I'm going to just write for practitioners. Consulting firms have been a good way to help identify what's going on because, you know, they're closely attached to clients and also to help kind of distribute any ideas that I had. Occasionally, I'll get tired of having people tell me what to do and consulting firms are worse about that than business schools are. Got it. That's very interesting. I, it, uh, in a similar vein, though, though, though pointed in a different direction, I want to also talk a little bit about your wanderings between topics. You uh, wrote frequently about re-engineering, a, a, a topic you were immersed in with the firm that was most associated with that, CSC Index. Um, you were an expert in ERP. Uh, you, you developed an expertise and, and a focus on knowledge management uh, prior to your current phase uh, that centers around data and analytics and artificial intelligence. And we'll get into the, that topic specifically in much more depth as this conversation goes on. But I, I wonder if you could take a moment and talk about the uh, one of the things, and forgive me, that's not an exhaustive list of the areas that you've explored, but one of the things that I find interesting as I've contemplated this, Tom, is you were influential in topics that you saw run from beginning to very, very hot to sort of reaching their conclusion and have pivoted on to other ones as well. Talk a bit about that process of going from a topic to another, the the points at which it became clear that it was necessary or interesting uh, to move to a new topic. Um, how does that how does that intellectual wandering happen? You really you really have done your homework well. Um, <laughs> I like to have influence on how people are acting in organizations. If they're not interested in what I'm writing anymore, <laughs> I try to move on to something else. And I've been. Pretty lucky, I guess. I think it's really hard to predict what people will get interested in. I've had three or four things that were became really quite popular. And then I've had some things that my timing was totally off. I, I wrote once a book on uh, called The Attention Economy, and I thought it was a fantastic book. It was attention-getting. Um, I, I had a great co-author. Um, we did a lot of fun research and so on. And um, we used bright green print for parts of it to get attention. And it came out on September 10th, 2001. And for some reason, the world wasn't paying much attention to my book then. I don't know why. <laughs> so I think um, I pretty quickly moved away from that topic and onto other things. And analytics, I, I have probably been with now for 20 years um, in one way or another. And I still talk about it a fair amount, um, just because it was a lot more popular than I expected it would be. And I didn't feel like I could leave it easily until it started to evolve into big data and AI, which is, you know, similar in a lot of ways. Um, they, they all use, you know, numbers and statistics and data and all that sort of thing. So yeah, well, let's 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 get into that topic. It, I I wonder, um, as as uh, you noted, it's a couple of decades uh, since you began to immerse yourself and immerse others with your thoughts uh, through through the written word and through your advising on data and analytics, big data, eventually artificial intelligence and associated um, disciplines as well. Uh, I mean, it, it almost seems like a silly question to ask what drew you in. Now it's like a, the hottest topic there is. 20 years ago, not necessarily uh, so. So definitely a fair amount of prescience uh, can be claimed by you. Uh, what, what drew you into the topic way back when? Well, it was just kind of a hunch in a way. And it, I was working in knowledge management and um, we had at Babson one of these, you know, funded research centers. Um, 
the Working Knowledge Research Center, and there were a number of companies that that you know paid to kind of hobnob about these issues and and have us do research. And knowledge management used a lot of the kind of sociological ideas. You know, people were very focused on how do you get people to share knowledge and use knowledge and what's tacit knowledge and all these things. And I thought, you know, this whole area, which I'd worked in a lot earlier in my career around statistical computing and so on, um, people didn't use any of those ideas. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll try that out for a while. And then there were a couple of companies who were sponsors of that research, SAS, the you know software company, and Intel. And they said, we'd like you to look at what our customers are doing with analytics, or they didn't call it analytics, they called it business intelligence. And I um, said, okay, that sounds interesting. So we did a little project for them and we kind of concluded that some companies were really getting into that subject in a big way. And that became competing on analytics. First, the Harvard Business Review article, probably my most popular article um, in HBR. And then a book, which was, I think, my best-selling book ever. So I, even though I think um, not that many companies were hugely aggressive with analytics, I think people like reading about what it would be like if they were, you know, um, what approaches could they take with analytics and how could it change things? And I didn't coin the term analytics, of course, but I think I might be partially responsible, at least for the upsurge in use of that term, because I thought it's not just statistics, it's not business intelligence was more reporting oriented at the time. So, um, but I remember the head of marketing at SAS, a guy named Jim Davis, who I liked a lot, said, it's great that you're going to write a book, but please don't use that term analytics. It's really nerdy. Nobody's going to, you know, want to use that. <laughs> How wrong he was. Uh, yeah, exactly. and, indeed, and indeed, uh, competing on analytics, the new science of winning, a, a terrific book that uh, I, I've certainly remembered being of, of enormous influence uh, when it came out. And I wonder if you could take a moment and describe the 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 of analytics to provide a bit of framing, if that's all right. Sure. Those I called eras, and I have added a fourth era to, to that over time. So um, I think I have. Yeah, I, I wrote about analytics 3.0, but then AI came along and that seemed to be sort of 4.0. But the first era was kind of the artisanal era um, where, I don't know, analytics people were sort of in the back office and not very visible and it took a long time to do anything analytically oriented and mostly reporting a little bit of predictive stuff and i think the big data era came along and changed things dramatically i mean artisanal analytics sort of lasted until when i got into the field in sort of the mid 70s until around 2000 or so didn't really change all that much but Big data was a huge change and you had these data scientists and the data was much more unstructured and vastly more quantities of it. I, I still remember interviewing a data scientist for, I wrote an article called Data Scientist, Sexiest Job of the 21st Century. And I interviewed a bunch of data scientists and one of them said, I don't know, helping managers make better decisions. That's the dead zone, man. <laughs> um, what they wanted to do was to create products and services based on um, data and analytics. And that was in digital native companies. And now I think lots of different companies are interested in doing that. So that was a big change. And then around, I don't know, 2013 or so, I um, started noticing that the more traditional sort of legacy big companies were also interested in a lot of these things like data products and they they were still interested in kind of decision support but they wanted to do it at a much broader scale kind of industrializing decision support and so um, that was analytics 3.0 and that lasted a few years until everybody said yeah well that's pretty interesting but these um, ai models are really more powerful and Let's switch to them. So I've been working on that pretty much, I don't know, close to a decade, not quite, maybe. 
Yeah, and you've been uh, a, a loud and prominent artificial intelligence optimist. Uh, I mean, you acknowledge the need for governance and legal frameworks and the companies uh, prepare themselves. But uh, my reading of your work and interviews, uh, listening to interviews with you, um, you believe a lot of the doomsday predictions for artificial intelligence to be overblown. And I wonder if you could provide a moment uh, of thought on, on why that is. Well, I did feel that way before generative AI. <laughs> I'm not quite as sure now as I was. Um, I didn't see much of a path toward, you know, the really negative predictions about a robot masters killing us all. I still don't really see that. I mean, I can see the theoretical arguments, you know, about telling machines to make paper clips and they realize if they kill all the humans, they can make more paper clips. That all seems very far-fetched to me. Now I'm still an optimist, but I am a little more wary than I was before because you start to see um, the power of generative AI. I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. It did, um, I mean, I'd, I'd written about it before ChatGPT came out, but um, uh, I think that really changed a lot of people's minds. And it, it changed mine not, um, Certainly the potential for misinformation, I think is very um, concerning. And I'm still not worried so much about you know, robot masters killing us all, but um, that uh, the misinformation and deep fakes and so on is concerning. And the, I think there, I, I was also quite optimistic about um, the job related issue. And I, I'm still mostly optimistic, but I certainly have more concern now than I did in the past. What form does that take, Tom? As you, as you, as your concerns mount, what what do you see as some of the jobs that are most at risk? No, nobody would want to put themselves in this category, I suppose. But kind of low quality garden variety content generators. So if you're writing, uh, I don't know, product descriptions or marketing blog posts or or whatever, I just can't believe that the massive amount of of greater productivity that generative AI is going to introduce into those jobs isn't going to mean some job loss. I mean, going back to the attention economy, there's only so much attention to go around. So we can't just produce more content all the time. Nobody has any ability to um, devote bandwidth to it, even as we as we are. So I'm worried about people like that. Um, Basically, I've always been, the only people I've really been worried about were the ones who refuse to learn about and use AI in their jobs, because I think there are going to be lots and lots of jobs where we have AI as our co-pilot, so to speak. And um, I thought that for a while, but I really, really think it now. You've highlighted the necessity to to immerse yourself. That that uh, that really is the biggest risk is to ignore it. Uh, and, and and others, whether it's companies or individuals, um, you will be surpassed if, in fact, you don't have a greater level of familiarity with it. I have to uh, add at this point, given your notion of the low quality garden variety content creators, you've also talked about how. Uh, generative AI is going to make uh, many of us who who uh, write uh, editors rather than writers of first drafts. Uh, to, to a greater extent, which, as you point out, is a a different skill set. Uh, and as somebody who is such a prominent writer and author, how do you see this impacting your work? I'd be interested to, no doubt, you're probably in the throes at least of some article writing and maybe even contemplating another book. But um, how do you see using uh, using generative AI in your own writing process now? I've tried it a fair amount, and I find it. Um, I don't think that I would want to use it for large scale, you know, text production, but I do find it useful for generating some ideas that I might not have thought of. I find it quite useful for research um, to say, I, I, I am writing another book now on sort of citizen development, citizen data science, citizen this and that. And with my co-author, he's actually done it better than I have. You can find out what everybody has thought and said about that issue quite easily through generative AI. I'm pretty sure it's not 
hallucinations. We should probably check that before we cite it. I think it's quite useful for that. I, I'm trying to start using, I give a lot of presentations. I'm going to, I have one to do now that I've written a, a Harvard Business Review article about, but I have never done a presentation on. So I'm going to try to feed it into one of these presentation generators and see how that works. I, I'm not a great prompt engineer, but I, I realize the importance of it. I think there's a, always a human component there. And then there's the human editing component on the on the backside. So still pretty, pretty heavy human um, involvement in all of this. I think if you want anything high quality. I was um, telling my students about this yesterday. I, I, I'm teaching a course on AI now um, to some undergrads. I don't usually teach undergrads, but I, I do enjoy it. I, I say, okay, great. I want you to edit this piece after ChatGPT or whatever produces it. And in some cases, they make it so much worse. You know, they ChatGPT at least has good grammar and punctuation and so on. And some of them are injecting their own errors in that regard, which is, I think, an interesting observations. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, maybe uh, double click a little bit more on this notion of us being editors as opposed to writers of first drafts. How, how with your own experience now, uh, uh, not only with your own experience personally in terms of some of the content creation, but also now having evaluated uh, young, young men and women in their own writing process, uh, what are your observations in terms of that evolution? Maybe provide a bit more insight into the editing uh, that is necessary in order for this to work well. Yeah, I, I've only realized this recently, in part looking at a bunch of essays that my students had created. Um, and um, I think there's a lot of prompt editing that's necessary. Um, you know, if you just ask, if you have a garden variety prompt, you're going to get a garden variety outcome. And so you got to keep, you know, pressing and asking for more detail. And, um, you know, they're people who do this a lot, I think, know what the sort of tips are to getting better outcomes. And then the once you have an output that you're pretty satisfied with, I think you have to say, okay, how much of that is really interesting? How can I supplement it with an example that it may not know of? Is it too short or too long? All of this content is created out of a very large amount of previously existing content. So if you want to say anything new, you're not likely to if you don't um, inject some of that on your own. So it's always hard to say something new anyway, of course, but um, you can at least try. Are there certain generative AI tools that have been more, more or less useful for you as you've explored, I'd, I'd imagine, several of them? Oh, uh, yeah, I should do more. Um, I am primarily a... GPT-4, ChatGPT, Dolly 2. I've used Midjourney a little bit. It's, you know, Dolly 2 and Midjourney have replaced my um, purloined images from um, Google image search in my, in my presentations. And I, I find them really great for getting exactly, the other day I was writing a piece about how generative AI isn't really um, the most appropriate AI technology for every company, if you aren't really interested in generating a lot of, you know, text or images or whatever. And I wanted to title it, are we missing the forest for the generative AI tree or something like that? And I I made an image in Dolly 2 is really great of a very highly decorated tree that sort of stood out in the forest Um but um, nobody notices any of the other trees as a result. And I think that's clearly happening with the AI overall these days. Let's get back, uh, Tom, if you don't mind, to your uh, counseling of other companies uh, through your consulting work and the research you do from that perspective. As I mentioned before, you've historically been an optimist, as you note, with some uh, maybe added caution given the pace of change with generative AI in recent months. Um, you've always been an advocate of making sure that there, there are sound governance pra practices in place and bearing in mind, you know, legal constructs that are important depending upon jurisdictions that a company operates in and so forth, among other, other, uh, uh, topics to be mindful of, to, to be responsible as one, uh, explores this further. Let's talk a bit about governance, if you don't mind. W what have you seen as good go governance constructs for this, especially within generative AI, the pace of change is so fast uh, and you know, we see a number of companies that initially 
were blocking access to it entirely that are now liberalizing a little bit or pre perhaps creating like a, a private instance of ChatGPT with Microsoft and OpenAI or some other tool uh, and finding the sort of safeguards that make them feel a bit more comfortable that they are lowering the risk of using these. Talk about what you're seeing work well uh, among the companies that you're exposed to and that you advise. Yeah. Well, I think that um, having a, a private instance or, you know, putting um, uh, one of these systems, whichever models you're going to use in a private cloud is a big help because then you don't have to worry nearly as much about are the prompts that you're putting in going to be vi eventually visible in some way to other other companies. And um, the board of one company is very interested in this topic. And and they said, if we typed um, something about pricing in there, they could get our prices. Uh, and somebody at the meeting who was an executive in the company said, believe me, they already have all of our prices. It's not that big of a deal. But um, I do think those kinds of guardrails help a lot when it's a private version. If you're a smaller company, you may not be able to afford that. Um, I think um, telling people what the, the kinds of prompt behaviors that are appropriate. I mean, I've been talking a lot to Morgan Stanley, for example, which has customized a version of, of, of GPT-4 for kind of internal knowledge management purposes. And since I was a knowledge management guy, at one point I'm very interested in that. And they do not allow you to ask, Not even though it's a private instance, they don't allow you to ask non-business questions of it. Um, and or to have these extended dialogues that have gotten, you know, New York Times reporters into trouble by um, ChatGPT falling in love with them or whatever, or, or getting hostile. So I think um, telling people what are appropriate behaviors is important. Um, I really want to write something about that, that issue that you just raised. And I have a company that I'm hoping that, that said they've developed a detailed policy. It's a very thoughtful company on these issues, and I'm hoping they'll um, let me write something about it, but it's not a done deal yet. I want to want to uh, draw out from you some of your insights from All In on AI, how smart companies win big with artificial intelligence. First, talk a bit about what constitutes winning big from your perspective. Uh, you know, as you think about the use of AI, um, what are examples of, of organizations that, uh, that are already leveraging it in ways that you would suggest uh, are, are tantamount to winning big? Sure. Yeah, you know, I think winning big means um, outcomes, not inputs. And so I have a friend who just did a ranking of all the banks, large banks in the world with regard to AI. And I, I won't pick out any particular bank, but she identified one as really good. And I said, you know, they don't have, they haven't created anything. And she said, no, but they're, you know, spending huge amounts of money and they've hired a lot of really smart people and so on, which I agree with, but, you know, that ultimately doesn't do you much good. So the companies in all in an AI are using it. To me, the most interesting things are um, they're trying to do something new. They're creating new products or services that, that benefit customers. They're even more interesting, they're trying to create new strategies or new business models. Um, and there, there were a fair number of those. Um, the, um, the ones that are doing sort of operational things with AI are trying to really transform themselves. Really, you know, you, you mentioned re-engineering early on. I, I never really think that these old ideas, nobody wants to bring them back in their original incarnation. But um, I do think companies are using AI to enable re-engineered processes. And I, I wrote a little piece with um, a couple of people on that issue, you know, dramatic change in, in how they do their work. And then the, the third major category, I think, um, kind of unexplored, uh, except in one company's case, is um, changing customer behaviors with this stuff. And Unfortunately, the only really good example we have is a bad example of changing customer behaviors for the worse, which came out of um, things like Facebook and so on, where we polarize the country and make kids depressed and, and so on. Um, but there, we, I talk about in the book a fair number of companies who are saying, okay, 
let's create better health behaviors. Let's create better driving behaviors. I just bought a new car, a new electric car. And I am told, I don't know when this is going to happen. I'm going to get a driving score um, any day now. I guess I have to drive a certain number of miles that tells me how good a driver I am, which presumably would help to make me a better driver. So um, uh, I think those are the things that, to me, constitute uh, winning winning big. And it's uh, to be fair, I think it's still early days. Um, some companies really succeeding quite dramatically. Some others, um, you know, have a vision of how to succeed quite dramatically, but they're not there yet, to be honest. Yeah. You also highlight in the book that it's less than 1% of large companies that represent those that are all in on AI. You know that they're the uh, all high performers in their industries, but I wonder what are some of the common elements of them? What what do you see as the 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 kinds of of aspects of those organizations and the leadership teams within them that drive them to the level of experimentation and ultimately uh, drive the level of value that you describe um, within the book across a variety of different uh, um, uh, parts of it? Yeah, well, they're um, they're pretty early adopters. You know, um, they they make a commitment pretty early. I mean the I was talking about Morgan Stanley earlier in terms of generative AI, but uh, we mentioned them in the book for a big next best action thing they did for their um, customers and financial advisors. And But they've been working with OpenAI for a year and a half now and um, was talking to somebody from there. And he said, you know, it's like I was, um, we were working with it with AI when they were like Bruce Springsteen in Asbury Park. <laughs> and and now, you know, it's like born to run has happened. So um uh so they start early. They have, I think, some degree of visionary leadership. There's a one company in the book um that uh, um I wrote a separate little article about it's called not terribly well known called CCC Intelligent Solutions. And they produce these um, capabilities for insurance companies to use when you crash your car, you have a mobile phone with their app, you can take photos of the collision damage, and a couple of minutes later, you get an estimate. And um, the CEO used to be the CTO of this company, and he was thinking like 10 years ago, gee, those smartphone cameras are getting better and better. And wow, this um, deep learning stuff seems to make some pretty good image recognition. Um, why don't we try to develop a combination of those two things? And it took a long time for the technologies to mature enough till I think 2021, USAA started using this technology um, with their customers. But he had the, the vision, which was impressive, I think. Um, uh, inspiring a lot of... of um, Experimentation. One of my um, heroes in this book is a, a guy named Piyush Gupta, who's the CEO of DBS Bank. And he um, said, let's do a lot of stuff with AI. Let's try it out. And he had some failures. He, Like everybody else who tried IBM Watson early on, he kind of failed with that. And he got a research arm of the government to do some stuff that didn't work. But he wasn't deterred. And they kept doing other things. And I heard him the other day on a podcast, and he said they had over 300 um, AI use cases in place. Um, and he gets personally involved, too. He was a kind of a protege of, to me, the first real banker who who understood the importance of information and technology, John Reed at Citi. And um, so he helped design PBS's data strategy, which you don't hear much about from a CEO. Um, so those kinds of things, willing willingness to make some big bets, um, uh, willingness to set a personal example, I think, to, you know, use AI yourself. And Piyush, they, they had this, there was this AWS um, sort of simulation of Formula One where you could learn about machine learning. And he said, I didn't finish in the top 10, but I was in the top 20. <laughs> Uh, of of all of the employees who who did it, so I, I think that's really impressive. Those are a few things. 
Yeah, and, and uh, it's probably not a coincidence that at least a couple of the examples you provided is the CEO, uh, I guess in each case himself, uh, who is very actively involved in pushing this. No doubt that aids this tremendously. Um, so setting up a philosophy, works. yeah, exactly. Setting a philosophy <laughs> of experimentation and 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 a necessity to be all in uh, using using your terminology. Are there other? Um, are there other uh, org organizational elements uh, that that are common among those organizations that that are doing best uh, in their use of artificial intelligence? Do, do you find that there's like a team dedicated to the topic, for instance, or uh, as opposed to making this a uh, small part of a lot of people's job, making it uh, the 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 primary set of responsibilities for a smaller portion of them? How do you see that that uh, playing out? Yeah, in, in a way, um, I should say this is not a terribly original idea because it's sort of what I did with competing on analytics. It was look at the companies that are the most aggressive and write about it and, and see what other companies can learn. And this is the companies that are most aggressive with AI. And I think a similar pattern is taking place where at the beginning of a focus on this technology, it's got to be centralized and there's got to be somebody leading it for the entire company. And you've got to allocate the resources to the best, um, most important projects and so on. But then over time, um, A, you, you, know, you get more used to the technology and B, the business leaders start to say, okay, that seems great. I want those people working for me, not for you know some centralized AI guru or whatever. And so you start to migrate toward a more decentralized approach. But I don't think too many companies are there yet. I think there needs to be some sort of central coordination of this resource now that it's it's still pretty scarce and pretty new for most companies. I think it's rather telling, uh, Tom, as we were talking about earlier, that um, you as a, a lifelong, uh, should lifelong, at least the, 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 the part of your life that's been focused on data and analytics and artificial intelligence, and has been very, very optimistic at the pace of change that generative AI just now in six plus months uh, since the release of ChatGPT 3.5, at least as we're having this conversation, is so dramatic that it has you rethinking some of though some of how you've described your own sort of philosophy about this as well and i wonder you know to what extent is that an indication of a the pace of change and also just how much is unknowable even weeks out uh to say nothing of years out uh in terms of its evolution uh it must be dizzying even for somebody who's been immersed in the topic for so long it is and i you know it's a horrible subject to be pontificating about in a way because um, every day I get like 10 newsletters or 20. I don't even I don't I haven't even counted them, but and each one has four great new generative AI applications that you need to explore. And so, you know, just reading the news about it is a full time job, God forbid, actually doing something with it. So um, it is amazing. You know, I think that there's real substance there. My guess is that the hype will die down a little bit as companies realize, yeah, you know, that's pretty useful stuff, but there are other forms of AI that we need to pay attention to. And so um, they'll maybe, it maybe it'll cool down a bit, but it just seems to, there seem to be so many things for which it's appropriate, you know, um, uh, not just the sort of personal productivity things, but generating new product designs or generating new um, molecules based on, you know, the sequence of amino acids and proteins. And um, who knows? Uh, I think it turns out that predicting sequential information is a really broad category that we didn't really realize for a long time. We We sort of I call it um, this first. I call it used to call it type ahead on steroids or autocomplete on steroids, but now I call it autocomplete on LSD because we have no idea where this is going to all lead. <laughs> it's been fascinating, Tom, to see the levels of investment in this, not only from the venture capital community, but of course by the 
the tech giants. Uh, it's not so surprising in some ways, of course, that it's the companies that either currently or have recently had trillion dollar valuations are pouring the most money into this. And I, I wonder to what extent you feel the spoils will flow to the behemoths relative to uh, some of the startups that, that, that are gaining some traction as well. How do you see that playing out, the extent to which you're developing perspectives from your own use of these tools and the use of, of clients of the same? Well, um, you know, I, I think there's some interesting aspects of that. One, um, the best, I think the best tools right now probably come from OpenAI. They're a 375-person company. Now, they are heavily funded by Microsoft, of course, but um, uh, they could have gone another way to get all that funding to, you know, do all the GPU cloud stuff that they needed to do. Um uh, the other thing that I think may happen is that it could it could all become a bit commoditized. And I was quite interested, for example, when Meta announced its new model, the Llama model, which is an open source model, um, they said uh, we had it learned from other um, generative models out there. And so that sort of says to me, all these models are going to be learning from each other eventually. They're all going to get much smarter than we are, of course. And it's going to be the Skynet thing. Um, or as somebody said to me, I thought it was a really good analogy the other day. Um, the, the underlying model could be like dial tone. And it's what you add on top of it that could be really, really valuable. So that makes me think um, it, I'm not too worried about the sort of Google's and the and the Microsoft and so on kind of dominating this category. I wanted to also ask you, Tom, as somebody I mentioned earlier, the the the, the number of um uh, prominent consultancies that you've had affiliations with currently with Deloitte. Uh what do you see as generative AI's impact on on the consulting business? Um and and how do you see its use in that industry? Yeah, well, um, you know, Deloitte has formed a generative AI practice. Uh, it's the first time they have specific practice for a specific type of AI. And I think that will, you know, power a fair amount of activity. Um, but there's also, you you know, there's a lot of work done in consulting that these systems can help to support. Um producing PowerPoints and writing reports and writing code. Um, you know, Deloitte writes a huge amount of code. And so when I, um, when I first started working with Deloitte on this, they were doing a generative AI experiment with OpenAI to, on the code side, um, Codex, I think it was called at the time, then it became GitHub Copilot and so on. And that person said, 20% improvement, and then they said 30%, and then 50%, and now they're seeing 60% improvement. And that's great, obviously. Um, I can't imagine that clients won't say, hold it, you're generating this code for 60% less resources. Um, I'd like some of that uh, money back, please. Um, that, I don't, I'm not sure they're focused on that particular issue, but I think it could well, change the economics of consulting to some degree. And what I would like, you know, I always I worked at McKinsey many years ago, and I was always, um, I thought it was unfortunate that McKinsey hadn't taken all of its client work, it'd been in business for a really long time, and said, okay, what do we recommend? And what happened at the client? And did it improve performance by how much? And, and so on. So you could get a more um, quantitative model out of it. Now, generative AI is not going to do that, but you could feed a whole lot of reports into it and say, you know, um, under what circumstances would you say this? What would you say about that? And it that could also, I think, change the economics of, of the profession. Yeah, very, very interesting indeed. I, I wanted to also, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you're in the, it sounds like maybe early stages of a book on citizen uh, development and data science. Uh, what's drawn you to to that? And I realize it may be early days in terms of your own research and writing associated with it. Can you talk a bit about um, you know, some of the maybe the thesis behind it or any conclusions sure. you might be drawing? Yeah, I think the best thing so far is my co-author's suggestion for a title, which is All Hands on Tech. Um, we were, I, I'd written some things. I wrote an article in HBR um, 
couple of years ago now, co-authored one on low code, no code. And I was quite interested in that. It clearly was having some ability to change the way that technology got created in organizations. And then um, uh, I started looking at citizen data science, being interested in AI and uh, got really, um, was working with some of the automated machine learning companies and talked to some of their customers. And that I thought was also a great productivity enhancer, not just for citizens, but for professionals, although in many cases, the professionals found it um, scary or objectionable. But, um, and then I did some work looking at citizen automation, um, companies giving everybody who wanted one, basically an RPA tool to create, you know, little departmental level um, automations. And it just seems to me the world, and generative AI, of course, um, can generate code or generate data analyses just by saying what you want. Um, now, you know, clearly we'll have to get pretty good at saying what we want and figuring out what the problem is. But wow, that's going to, I think, have a big impact on organizations. It could create, you know, the fastest move toward digitization we've ever seen, or it could create mass chaos, I think everybody creating their own payroll system or or whatever, or everybody creating their own Salesforce propensity model that, that ranks leads and coming up with different answers and um, the Salesforce um, goes crazy. So um, I just think it's a really fascinating area that could change. I, I don't think IT organizations are going to go out of business, but I do think they're going to change quite dramatically. And some of the companies that um, we're looking at are really facilitating this, and some I think are scared of it or reluctant to, to do that. As somebody, Tom, who interacts with a great number of young people who have not even embarked on their career yet, what sort of advice, given especially the changes that you're describing, uh, what sort of advice do you offer when they ask you for uh, you know, directions they might pursue or industries or, or topics that would be particularly hot for the, the decade ahead or, or, or longer? What, what sorts, I, I realize, of course, part of that council will be very much uh, tailored to the, the interests uh, uh, and the topics raised by that student, him or herself. But what, what are some themes that, that, that you're, you see uh, among that advice? I try to personalize my advice with chat GPT, you know, I, <laughs> um, maybe I should do that. I, um, I'd say stay in school. It's a, it's a jungle out there. <laughs> you don't want to graduate yet. Um, no, I think, um, a couple of things. One, as we were talking earlier, you've got to be aware of the technology and sort of be a heat seeking missile in terms of trying out new stuff and so on. I mean, clearly you can waste a lot of time fooling around with it, but I think it's important to do it. And, you know, even a, a person of my advanced age, I try to keep more or less on top of what these things can do. It's not easy. Um, and then um, I think always be thinking about how you can, whatever your field is, be thinking about how you can add value to it over what these tools can do. Maybe you can help develop the tools. Maybe I wrote a book about this, um, co-authored a book um, in 2016 called Only Humans Need Apply. And it had sort of five alternatives. You could work with it. You could develop it. You could manage the overall environment. You could reject it and find something that it can't do, which is getting harder and harder. Or you could get in such a little niche in your job that no one would find it economical to automate. But the cost of automation is dropping dramatically, so I'm not sure how good an advice that that one would be. But um, I still think that's a good advice, and you know, be thinking, try to take the big picture. AI is, tends to be a little bit more focused. How's the world changing? Um, uh, try to get good at framing the problem, not just saying you know what's the solution, because again, that's still pretty much a human 
thing to do right now. Very interesting advice indeed, Tom. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, as someone who is a professor at Babson, is a, a co-founder involved in an analytics institute, you're a fellow at MIT, a senior advisor at Deloitte, you write books, you write articles. How do you manage your time? Uh, how do you determine how to spend each of those days and how how organized is that? And, and maybe a peek into the team behind that, the extent to which there is one that helps keep you on, on task across the various things you're involved in. Sadly, not much of a team. Um, uh, my wife used to represent me for speaking, and um, but her business didn't do so well during COVID, so she got out of it. But I have a team that helps me with that at a speaker's bureau. And I have a social media person who helps me with more complex social media things. But otherwise, sadly, it's just me. And um, I what I really like the best is writing things. Um, so I try to every day write something. Um, you know, sometimes I don't succeed, but I like to go to Starbucks, get a big um, venti iced tea, and write there. I go to the library or just to go to a different place than I'm sitting at my desk all day. And um, I try to talk to people as much as I can. I don't know what's happening in the world. I got to talk to people who are doing it um, face to face. I always say, you know, thank God for those heroic people who are creating great innovations with technology and business, because I kind of made my career by writing about what they're doing. I also wanted to ask you, how do you choose your collaborators? You've had such a wide array of them, especially in your, your writing. So co-authors of books, co-authors of of pieces for the various periodicals, HBR very prominently, of course. It's been a wide array of folks. It's not as though it's a one person that you're always with. It's a it, it's a you, you've you've been very liberal uh, in casting your net widely. Um, how have you chosen them, and how do, or how do they find you? Um, sometimes they approach me and send me you know a draft of an article and say you know what. Could, would you like to co-author this and maybe get it in HBR or whatever? Um, uh, I, you know, writing it can kind of be a somewhat lonely activity. And so I like it if there's somebody to bounce ideas off of. And um, my co-author now on this Citizen book is really good about um, exploring new technologies and, and taking new perspectives and so on. Um, I just generally like it better. It doesn't necessarily make things come out any faster, I think, than when I do it on my own, but it's certainly more interesting to have somebody to talk to about this. My wife is really bored listening to me to pontificate all the time, so she's not interested in talking about it, certainly, and um, even my kids don't seem to have much of an interest in well, I mean, unlike them, it's been a great pleasure for me to, to have this conversation with you, Tom. I really appreciate you taking time, sharing a bit about uh, the remarkable career you've had, uh, the various ideas you've helped shape uh, your vision of the future in some really important areas, a peek into the, the, the work that you're doing right now as well. It's really been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Great, great questions. I really, really appreciate your, your efforts in that regard. <laughs> oh, you're kind to say that. Thank you so much.